Welcome back, sisters. This is Felicia Gold with your podcast, Salty, where we learn how to move towards our purpose, get a good understanding about how we fit in the great scheme of things. We rest, we relax, and we revive. I'm so happy that you decided to join me today. I, as always, I have a great story and plan for you guys, but I just wanted to say thank you so much um, for all of your support. If you know people who may need a good encouragement or some enlightenment or some insight, please, please, please have them follow and or like and subscribe to um, my other platforms as well. You can find me on Instagram um, and Facebook and TikTok. I am author Felicia and you can find me by those titles. So we've got quite a bit of story ahead of us. So let's get into it. So, um, let's just kind of reflect on where we have been, where we are, where we're going. And, you know, during this pandemic, we've had to readjust everything. How we work, how we shop, how we eat, how we educate, and how we connect one with another. There are so many things that we have taken for granted in the past that now we find ourselves thirsting for the simplest things. To see a smile, to breathe unrestricted, to hug a friend or a stranger for that matter. We miss being able to sneeze without people sneering and fearing that we are spreading this thing, right? Marriages have had, uh, they've been put on the ultimate challenge of trying to stay together while fighting. Bills are piling up and simple desire to connect dying. All facets of professional life had um, felt the tentacles of this, not just in America, but across the entire world. And there is nothing, and there has been nothing that we could do to stop it at that point, at the height of the pandemic. We have been on a roller coaster, and it seems like it was a roller coaster that I'm gonna be honest um, when it first hit I was much less afraid as as I was happy to be able to um, not have to get up and go somewhere like I could work from home and it was like wow you know so at first it was kind of relaxing to be at home um, but when I say it was like a roller coaster but a roller coaster with no sight with no end in sight like so what came first started out as being, oh, okay, this is cool to, oh my God, I just want to go outside, right? It felt like we had no breaks and there was nobody driving the bus, okay? <laughs> Everything that we used to love, that we used to work for, our children, our spouses, our mission, purpose, ministry, hopes, and desires, everything that used to have all of our attention um, was something now, you know, to desire. Those things have become, or had become, places of hurt and concern and a source of pain because in this place that we've been in, we didn't control anything. And we begin to question everything because you don't know when it's going to stop. You keep waking up and you go to sleep hoping that when you wake up, it, 
<laughs> it's going to be different. But you find out it's the same thing over and over again. There were people who have spent all of their savings trying to fix this hole in their heart and their lives. Married people are getting divorced. Parents are leaving the children and the children are exploring areas in their lives that are way beyond their years of maturity. Single people are taking dangerous risks to connect with people over the internet. Some are bringing people into their homes and they have, they would have never entertained before. Young people at the, at the height of this were having parties because they didn't even believe that they was that serious. So we were at a place in the world and in history where it felt like all was lost. We were in something like a fight and we were being bruised and we were being cut on every side and every side was bleeding. And when we woke up, we were bleeding. When we went to sleep, we were bleeding. We dreamt about bleeding. But the worst part of it is that while we were bleeding, we weren't dying. So we wake up, we would wake up and we'd have to do it all over again. And no one seemed to have the answers. Politicians didn't have the answers. Parents didn't have the answers. Educators didn't have the answers. Scientists didn't have the answers. Doctors didn't have the answers. There were no answers to stop the bleeding. And we were spending all of our money and all of our time trying to figure this thing out. And yet, when we think we're on the brink of a breakthrough, we started bleeding again. And now, have no money, all of our resources are tied up, dried up, and we're still hanging on the hope. We see that at the end of our hope, we are at the end of our rope. And the only thing that we can think of is to find something miraculous. So we look in deep into the recesses of our minds and in our hearts and our spirit, and we begin to question, is there anyone that can save us now? Then a glimmer of hope passes by. That's where we are. We are in a crowd looking for a glimmer of hope and it reminds me of a story. There was once a woman with an issue of blood. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years, not the three that we were bleeding. Not only has she been bleeding for 12 years, she was not an out, she was now an outcast, right? And as a woman, I can tell you that the worst thing in the world is to be bleeding uncontrollably. We don't like it for seven days. So I can only imagine waking up for 12 years bleeding and leaving every one of those days bleeding. I can only imagine spending all of my money, losing my friends because nobody wants to hear your story. Of course, at first when you are going through something, some people will rally beside you. But when the time keeps rolling on, nobody wants to hear your story. They do not want to hear your problems because they have problems too but you're bleeding nobody wants to hear about your divorce nobody wants to hear about your daughter dying nobody wants to hear about you going bankrupt nobody wants to hear about your issues and nobody cares if you don't have enough blood in your body your body does not function the way it's supposed to you know i i used to be very um what is anemic and so I completely understand 
that it's hard to fight off colds and messes with your immune system. It's hard to fight off anything that shows up because if you don't have enough blood, it's even difficult to walk upstairs without huffing and puffing. Your joints begin to ache. Your mind gets cloudy because you need oxygen and the blood carries the oxygen throughout your body. If you don't have blood, you have an issue. And this woman had an issue, baby. She had an issue with a thing that was put in her life to bless her and to give her life because life is in the blood. Now, the thing that brought her life is causing her to want to die. She's desperate. She needs answers. And she carries a stench that only a woman can understand. She's embarrassed. She's losing hope. She's depressed. And no one has any answers. And all she has is issues. So, as I was thinking about this story, I did a little research just to find out how this type of issue would have been debilitating in this time period. And what I learned was women were considered unclean during their menstrual period in Leviticus. Concerning women during the menstrual period, the Lord instructed the Israelites when a woman has had her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days and anyone who touches her will be unclean until the evening. That's Leviticus 15 and 19. Now, to fully appreciate the compassionate provisions of the law given here, we need to understand the reasons behind it. Mainly, the instruction was given for sanitary health and physical rest purposes. It was given to contain the blood flow by restraining the woman's activities, especially sexually, and also to relieve women of many of their normal duties until they regained their usual strength. The seven days were a time of rest. These laws were also given to protect women against the heathen superstitions that were prevalent at the time. These superstitions subjected that um, the women to cruel treatment, discrimination, and inhumane acts. The following historical passage that I have um, shows some of these superstitions. Okay, so let's talk about it. It says, contact the monthly flux of women Contact with the monthly flux of women turns new wine sour, makes crops wither, kills grafts, dry seeds in gardens, causes the fruit of trees to fall off, dims the bright surfaces of mirrors, dulls the edge of steel and the gleam of ivory, kills bees, rusts iron and bronze, and causes a horrible smell to fill the air. Dogs who taste the blood become mad and their bite becomes poisonous as rabies. The Dead Sea, thick with salt, cannot be drawn asunder except by a thread soaked in the poisonous fluid of the menstruous blood. A thread from the infected dress is sufficient. Linen touched by the woman while boiling and washing it with water turns black. So magical is the power of a woman during her monthly periods that they say that hailstorms and whirlwinds are given away if menstrual fluid is exposed to the flashes of lightning and that's um comes that quote comes from the pliny the elder natural history book 28 chapter uh 23 pages 78 through 80 book 7 and then chapter uh 65 so to detain the Jews from having these superstitions as well as for sanitary and health purposes, the Lord gave specific instructions regarding this issue. This way, the menstruating women 
will not be pressured and will be treated with kindness and understanding during their de uh, delicate and often often um, painful time. Blood and bleeding cannot in itself be unclean or unholy because without the shedding of blood, there would be no salvation. Being a woman could not have been unholy or God would have not chosen a woman to bring forth the Savior. Bodily discharge is unclean, but not unholy. Why would God create a bodily function, give the woman a fun the function, and then punish her for it? He wouldn't. The bleeding is an opportunity to rid the body of waste. Pure and simple. The Bible is clear to let us know that Christ shed his blood for us. He did so to provide a pathway to ridding the world of the waste of sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus shed both water and blood, the water separated from the blood. So this woman, who was weak without the answer that she needed, gathered all of her might and decided to make one last attempt to get healing. She had heard about a man <laughs> that had been in town and folks had been telling stories that he was healing people. Three different disciples found it necessary to give a written account of this woman and her issue. And from three different perspectives, do we find out why this woman's issue is our issue? Matthew was not just a publican by his own recount. He was also a Jew. He knew that in order for the Jews to understand the depth of Jesus, he would have to constantly remind them that the acts of Christ were fulfilling the prophecies concerning the Messiah. He broke his background information, the genealogy of the Messiah and the generations until Jesus' birth to begin to give evidence that this Christ had been sent of the one and true God. He chose to stray from emotional attachment and spoke surgically about the facts. However, he thought it not waste to take time to mention this woman who would have been considered an outcast. Perhaps he shared this account because he could personally bear witness to the deliverance that she received. Remember, Matthew was a publican. He would have been considered um, nothing more than a thief and likened equivalent to murderers. He's a tax collector. He's taking people money, right? So he knew something about the redemptive, life-changing power of Christ. How do I know that? Matthew wrote something that only a witness could. And he says, in uh, verse 20. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I could touch his cloak, I would be healed. He wrote that she said it to herself. How would he know what she said to herself other than understanding in that moment where she was because he had been there too. However, Mark, would see the whole scene in Jesus very different. He came from a family of means and was most likely highly educated. His mother owned a large home and it was large enough to host guests and they had servants, which is interesting because he tells of Jesus the servant. Mark knew what a servant looked like. He knew how a servant acted and he saw that in Jesus, his primary audience, the Romans, were under persecution from Nero and were not interested or in need of the formality of this Christ. They wanted to know what he could do. They wanted to know what he had done. So it is reasonable that since Mark grew up with the servants, that he knew that Christ's acts were based in servitude. From his experience, no one cares 
what a servant came from. No one cares who a servant is related to. And by no means do you familiarize yourself with a servant by defouling yourself by touching them. But here, in his short account of Jesus, does he pause to talk about a woman who found herself clearly another woman of means like his mother Mary in desperate need to only touch Jesus. How powerful it would have been to tell the Romans that this woman of means would humble herself to jump class lines and risk it all just to touch a sound. Our last account of this woman comes from a highly educated person who was also a physician. He spoke to the Greeks in a language that would attract their need to meditate and find no other answer but the miraculous. Luke may have been able to speak about the woman's issue but he also knew that she could not be healed. So for him to witness the miracle and then give credibility to the perfect nature of the man who was also God was the type of advertising that would attract the Greeks. His forensic account of the interaction did not involve the ignorance of emotions. His reasoning would be accepted primarily because his reputation preceded him. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was a gentle Gentile, and history would recount him as a lover of people who thought not of himself. A prolific historian who penned a gospel in which he took no time to mention himself. Although each of these men were very different, there is one thing that remained consistent in all of their accounts. No one knew who had touched Christ. Some went as far as to inform Christ that with the crowds around him as they were, many people probably touched him. But Christ was not asking who had physically put their hands on him. He wanted to know who had understood that without faith it is impossible to please God. He wanted to know who had tapped into eternity and pulled down a truth that despite all that had transcribed in his life, someone's faith had not failed. It was that one act that caused all of heaven to turn and take notice. If you want to please God, touch Him. Gird yourself with a most holy faith that in spite of what storms arise, it causes you to be angry. It rejects what is for what truly it gives us the beauty for ashes. It is what makes the weak say that they are strong. It is what makes the poor say that they are rich. I dare you to take your issue to the healer and let him touch you. Again, I hope something that I said helps you find your place in your purpose and leads you into the place where not only are you touching people, but you are touching God. Have a great day and we will begin again tomorrow.